This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. I've been thinking about Clint Nuremberg's response up there. It's kind of how uh, kind of how my spirit's been as I thought about this task of having to take up this subject and preach it today. That's kind of what's been going on in here. It's like, oh boy, what a thrill, right? Um, I, I just want to say a big thanks to all of those who didn't shy away from the microphone or the camera that we, when we went up to you and we asked the question, you know, what did Jesus have to say about sex, and who gave us some really good responses and some great answers. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate, appreciate out of uh, that video was that there was a lot of joy and a lot of laughter, and um, that's fitting for the subject, for the subject of, of sex and for sexuality. I also really enjoyed the fact that there uh, was a lot of good theological thinking that um, had taken place and is taking place, and that people are reflecting upon sort of the fullness of Scripture when they responded to those questions. You know, one of the things that, that strikes me as I listen to all of those responses, because here's the, you know, the question was, what did Jesus have to say about sex? Well, one of the, uh, one of the things that you'll note is that if you go through the Gospels, most of the things that were on that video, you can never find quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You know, like Jesus didn't say, um, you know, go for it after you're married. Um, now, that's good theology. It's, it's a great understanding of the full spectrum of Scripture. But Jesus didn't say those exact words. Or Jesus didn't say, um, you know, enjoy it. But he didn't have to in some regard. Because the pages of Scripture already said it. Um, for instance, let me share with you this text from Proverbs chapter 5. It says this, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, may her breast satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated always by her love. You know, Jesus didn't have to say enjoy it. It's kind of already said. And uh, as I read that text to my kids this week, um, my kids are like, Dad, that's in the Bible. And I'm like, yes, it is. I said, aren't you glad we're not putting up a graphic to go along with it? And they're like, oh, my goodness, you know. This is wild and crazy. But if you think about the, the Scriptures, the fullness of the Scriptures, the Scriptures that Jesus read, the Scriptures that Jesus heard, not just the ones that he spoke, but the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. When you think about the Proverbs, you think about Song of Songs, when you think about Ruth, when you think about all kinds of stories within the pages of the Bible that Jesus knew and embraced and read. There's two different venues that come out to us, and, and they represent kind of the places where Jesus lived, too. One of the pictures that takes place within the Scriptures is that there is this celebration and this joy and this wonder and this just this God-blessedness of sex and sexuality. And at the same time, the scriptures present to us lots of pictures where sexuality goes tragically off course. And it creates piles of messes all around. Um, to the first one, well, and I would say this, one more thing. So in the blessedness or in the, in the places where there's messes, one of the pictures that Jesus, I think, would have us see is that um, he needs to be present. 
desires to be present in both places. And when he does, he seeks to bring about good and beautiful things. Take, for instance, John chapter 2. Now, John 2 is the story of when Jesus goes to a wedding and they run out of wine, right? And then his mom comes up to him and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. You have to do something. And Jesus looks back at her and he says, um, my time is not now. But yet he still takes action and he produces wine for the wedding. And so the wedding continues to transpire, goes on for days because he's made great wine and lots of wine. I mean, the thing goes from three or four or five days to more than seven. I mean, it's a party that doesn't end. One of the unique uh, pictures there is that wine runs out. And <clears throat> that's a reality within the story that wine runs out. But the, the fact that wine runs out can also be a metaphorical reality. And it's a metaphorical reality that, uh, that all of us face at some point. Because we come to the end of ourselves. Strength gives out. Vitality gives out. We grow old. We, or maybe are at a place in life where we don't have capacity like we would wish to have capacity. And we find ourselves at the end of ourselves. And we can do it uh, that coming to the, to the place where we're at the end of ourselves can happen in lots of areas of life, and it can happen with regard to sexuality. Several years ago, Anna and I got to see this played out when we were at a, at a camp in western New York. We were at a family camp in, at Houghton College in western New York, and the places where we would stay, we would sleep, were in, in the college dormitory rooms. And we were at, one morning we were around a round table with a number of people from our church, and we were talking about things that were happening at the family camp, and one of the persons at the round table was Mrs. Shannon. Mrs. Shannon was married to a retired pastor, um, and they were, at this point, they were either in their late 70s or early 80s. And as we were talking about the events of the day and uh, the night before, Mrs. Shannon started to tell us at the table about their night before in the college dorm room. Okay, because that's where everybody stayed, their night before in the college dorm room. Now, Ann and I were, we had been married for about five years. We were 25 years old. We had taken those single beds that they put in college dorm rooms, and we'd put them together, slid them together, you know, because we thought, we're young, we're married, um, we, we've got some energy, we can't be separated like that, you know. But uh, Mrs. Shannon said they didn't worry about putting their beds together. They just crawled into a single bed, the two of them, Mrs. Shannon and Pastor Shannon, and they started to snuggle. And everybody around the table was listening, and she, she kept going, and we're like, Mrs. Shannon, TMI, time out. Where are you going with this story? <laughs> and she's like, now don't. She said, don't let your minds wander too far. But she said, we got into bed and we started to snuggle. And we started to recount where our lives have been. What we've been able to do. Where we've gone. The people that we've met. We started to talk about how God has been with us. And how God has guided us and how God has blessed us. Which was a pretty significant comment for them in terms of blessing because they had never been able to have children. But they looked around and they counted all kinds of people as people that they loved and who loved them in return, just like children. Whatever hopes they had that, that weren't fulfilled, they came to the end 
not really the end, not just yet, but they came to this place where they were looking at the end of life and they were saying, Jesus has been in our midst and is in our midst. And yeah, there are lots of hopes and dreams that didn't come to fruition along the way, but there is joy, profound, incredible, beautiful joy. And Jesus, like being at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, when the wine runs out, gives more wine, and he meets a need. He met a need for Pastor and Mrs. Shannon that throughout their life they come to this place where there is joy in the fullness of life. And their sexuality is a beautiful and marvelous and gorgeous thing. So Jesus longs to meet us in those places. Jesus also shows up in places when sexuality goes another direction and when everything isn't right and when we encounter experiences that are disconnected, if you will, from what God originally intended for us. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, or if you've got an iPhone or uh, uh, something else you'd like to read on, I'd encourage you to go to Matthew chapter 19 and have that open. Uh, Pastor Jim said he, he reread the passage this morning. He said, every time I read this passage, there's something new, there's something that comes alive, something that comes awake. And so I would just encourage you to have that open and before you as we continue on in our, in our time together. Uh, Matthew writes this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he cured them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and they came to test him. So they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that the one who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Uh, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her? But Jesus said to them, It was because you were so hard-hearted that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And so I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, isn't it better for us not to marry? But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. But there are eunuchs, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been eunuchs, or have been made eunuchs by others, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let everyone accept this who can. When Jesus um, comes to this place, he comes to a spot in his ministry where he's very popular. And the Pharisees are trying to bring, they're trying to find a place where they can limit his popularity. And so if you want to limit somebody's popularity, one of the, the great ploys, one of the great techniques that you can employ is to bring up something that's divisive within your culture so that people have to make a decision for or against you. And so they see Jesus being popular, see all kinds of people following Jesus, and they know that within their own midst there has been a great debate. And so they bring this debate and this great division into, into Jesus' ministry, and they wonder how he's going to handle it. And, and the question, the debate, has been over what kind of latitude ought to be allowed in the, in the realm of, of divorce. Now, um, there was this expectation 
within Jesus' time that divorce was a reality. In fact, it wasn't just a reality. It was something that was legal. It was something that happened. It was something that men could initiate, but women couldn't. There's, there's one woman we know of in the New Testament that initiated divorce. But men could initiate it. Women didn't have any rights to initiate it. And so these Pharisees that are guys, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, give us some example of when it's allowable, when it's permissible. So the debate went something like this. You had one school of thought that said, when you look back at Moses, the only time Moses allowed you to divorce your wife was if, she, she, if there was adultery committed. Now, <clears throat> one of the unique things that, that doesn't always come up is that there was this expectation that a guys didn't commit adultery, only wives could commit adultery. You got a lot of wacky thoughts that are at, at place here, but that, that was the thought of the day. That, so if, if your wife committed adultery, then you could divorce her, but only then. And then there was this other thought, this other school that the Pharisees suggested, and that many of them lived in. In, in fact, um, for any, that line that, that Matthew tells us, for any reason possible, was a line that many of them followed, that many of them put into place. So, for example, uh, if your wife uh, cooked you a bad meal, you could simply get up and say, um, be gone, you know, farewell. Uh, that was a bad meal, and I think I'm going to look for a different wife. So you might want to head out. If, uh, if your wife got up in the morning and her hair didn't look pretty, or you got up and you're like, don't really like that today, you could say, see you later, Gator. Um, uh, if, if, you, if you find that she was aging in a way that you didn't like her to age, or if, if she was too loud, or for whatever reason, you could simply say, she gone, uh, on to the next one. Now, it's one thing to have a debate, right, and to debate these things in an academic way. It's another thing when the debate turns into pragmatics, because that kind of debate, turned into pragmatic, produces a pretty pitiful situation. And we can see that situation played out when Jesus goes to a well in Samaria in John chapter 4. Uh, many of us have read our Bibles in thinking that when Jesus encounters the woman at the well, in John chapter 4, that she somehow has had a problem because Jesus mentions to her that she's had five husbands and she's living with a guy currently who is not her husband. But in reality, in the world in which she lived, she didn't walk away from any of her husbands. Each and every one of them had to push her aside, had to send her on her way, had to leave her behind. And so there is this this thrust that Jesus has in mind, this idea that God had in place where a man and a woman would come together and they would be joined together in, in heart, in mind, in body, in, in the fullness, and they would have a great sense of joy. That picture that Jesus has in mind is not to be found in this woman's life. And in fact, uh, sexuality, which is meant to be a gift, turns into a commodity that she ends up employing to keep a roof over her head and food on her table. And she comes out to a well in the middle of the day when nobody else would be there because nobody else wanted to be around her. You see, she's become a commodity. And she is outside of the realm of relationship within her own community. And she has a number of questions about whether or not she can even be in a relationship with God himself.
Jesus knows that this woman is a captive. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, I've come to set the captives free. And so he enters into a conversation with this woman. And by the end of the day, she is taking it all in. Because she knows that she's at a place where she needs healing. And the world in which she lives needs healing. So Jesus listens to this question from the Pharisees. He listens to their ruminations. And Jesus understands that the Pharisees are working from a complex, um, complex set of confounded narratives, a number of false narratives. They have false narratives about marriage and divorce. They have false narratives about men and women. They have false narratives about um, sexuality and about righteousness and holiness. They have a number of false narratives about the nature of God himself. And all of those false narratives are like bound up in a rubber band ball. And they produce some of the wackiest ideas about God, and they produce wacky ideas about themselves and about the world in which they live. And this, I I would just like to say, this is what happens in the world that lives sort of in a delusional fog impacted by sin. Not just a particular sin, but by sin in general. And then it surrounds our hearts and it helps to create hard hearts that develops a series of buttressed arguments so that we are always sort of protected by this cloud of confusion. That's where the Pharisees are at. Hard-hearted. A number of wacky narratives buttressed by this cloud of confusion. And Jesus, wanting to cut through all of that, says, let's look at God's original design for men and women. Let's look at God's original design for marriage and sexuality and what we're intended to be like. One of the most interesting lines, and I'll just let it stay with you, is that instead of a woman leaving her house and being joined to a husband, Jesus said, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. think on that for a little bit. Jesus goes back to this original design and he says God made man and woman and he made them for each other. He made them to find a blessing and a joy and a a pure delight within one another's arms. Um, Jesus reminds us that God made one of each. When he laid Adam down, and he took a rib out of Adam's side, he didn't take lots of ribs. That's what they do in The Bachelor, right? You get one guy and lots of women. That's not God's original design. One rib, one woman. And in that picture, Jesus is helping us see that God had something that he longed for us to to, um, represent in the world that he longed for us to be images of of the very triuneness of God and the beauty of God, that we would reflect the creative side of God. Whenever you go to a wedding, lots of times we'll talk about how if if God so wills, there there should be this procreative 
uniqueness that comes out of this union. You know, when two people come together, they, they produce children. Well, procreativeness can go beyond just having children. It was that creativeness, that gift of God that he has given to us that enabled, I would suggest, the writer of the book of Proverbs to write that poetry that celebrates the gift of a bride. Procreativeness has enabled me to write more poems in my adulthood than I've ever than I had ever written before when I was a kid. The capacity to, um, to have joy and celebration with my wife has, has given me the ability to create more things and build more things than, than I can begin to name. Because when we start to live where God has invited us to live, there is just all kinds of things that flow out of it. Because it generates, it doesn't just generate love or it doesn't generate uh, satisfaction, but it generates all kinds of other things, fruitful things that God rejoices in. Jesus, in um, the Gospel of Luke, and then over in the book of Revelation, makes a couple of comments where he says, I've come to make all things new. And um, so instead of giving a thumbs-up status quo to the people who come to him, the Pharisees, and ask about their situation, and they, they want to know where he falls within their argument. Jesus says, in, in many ways, that the world in which we are living is broken. And this image that God set in place, this original image, this original picture that God has for us, is a picture that I want you to see, and I want to point you back to. I know that um, it's hard for us to get there. But I want to make all things new. And I want us to strive for that. And I want that picture to be a picture that, that a whole lot more people embrace and enjoy and see at work in their life. Um, as Jesus talks about this, Matthew tells us that the disciples are in the background. And they're overhearing this conversation. And they look at one another. And then when Jesus joins them, they look at Jesus and say, Jesus... How in the world can this be? With what you describe and with what we know about women, I, um, you, just have to, you just have to think what's going on in their, in their minds, right? They hold a number of wacky narratives as, as well. They say, wouldn't it be best if we just didn't get married at all? Every time I think about that question, I think about three guys that um, Anna and I encountered soon after we were married. These three guys, they're a lot older than that today, but there's Greg and Mark and, and uh, oh, no, another name came into my mind. That's not his name. It's Carl. Greg and Mark and Carl were a few years younger than us, and Ann and I got married when we were 20. And these guys remind me of the questions of the disciples because they would look at us after we got married, and they'd be like, man, why did you get married so, so soon? Why did you get married when you were so young? Why did you get married when there's all kinds of people out there in this world and you could like run around with and you can hang out with? And you guys just entered into death. That's what they thought about marriage. It's like entering into death. And you did it so early. How could you do that? How could you be locked in with one person when there's all this other potential out there? And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, guys, uh, I just want to paint a different picture for you. 
And in fact, as I've been painting a different picture for the Pharisees and the questions that they've asked, I want to paint a different picture for you and ask you a question. And I think it's a question that's very relevant to us today. Because the disciples and, and us, the culture in which we live, has a lot of similarity. Our culture would say that you don't really have the full fun functioning of a human person, of a human being, unless you're able to express yourself in a sexual way. And in fact, I think there's some, some sense that we could say, some proof if we piled up the, the, the data, and in fact, maybe the zeitgeist of our age says, unless you are sexually expressive, you may not be a full, fully human person. Because we tend to say, you know, if, if you start philosophically counting up what it means to express yourself as a full human being, you've got to be fully um, sexually aware and sexually active if you're going to be a full human being. That's what the age says. But Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this. I want you to consider those who are eunuchs among us. Those people who cannot, at this moment, express themselves sexually. Some of them can't do it because they were born in such a way that their physical bodies won't enable them to do it. Some people in our midst, we don't have them now, but in the time of Jesus, some people in our midst have been born and raised in, in a time of slavery. And their capacity has been taken away from them. And some people in our midst, Jesus says, some of us, like John the Baptist, like himself, some of us are at a stage in life where there is a burden or there's a calling or there's something upon our shoulders, some kind of work that doesn't enable us to go in that direction at this moment. There's something about the flow of our life that says that expressing ourselves sexually isn't for now isn't for this present moment. Jesus suggests to them that you don't have to be sexually active to be a full human being, to be, to be fully human. In fact, he would suggest to us, and I think, and I think maybe the Gospels do in, in a large part, because the Gospels are pretty quiet with regard to what Jesus says about sex. Maybe Jesus would simply say to us, we give it far too much room in the discussions and in the thoughts that we have in this life. Recently, a retired professor from Asbury Seminary was blogging about sexuality, and in particular, he was blogging about homosexuality in the church. And he faced this question from a young guy by the name of Tony. When he was saying that, the professor was, he was saying there's something, you know, a, a greater calling. And Tony wrote in and he said, you know, if we think about ourselves, when it comes to defining ourselves, the definition of what we are, our humanity, isn't sexuality a point of necessity? a reference of necessity about who we are. And the professor replied with some pretty wise words. If we are Christians, the sense of who we are in our identity is in Jesus Christ. And that identity 
transcends and relativizes all other identities or sources of identity. So sexuality certainly is a core constituency of our, of our humanity. But whatever, uh, but whether that sexuality is homo or hetero is often shaped by a multitude of factors, all of which must be handed over unreservedly to Jesus so that we can be formed in his image within his body. Conversion and sanctification are, after all, and very fundamentally, a matter of reorientation. In other words, centering our life in Christ, Christ in us, fundamentally reorients everything else in our lives, from sexual self-understanding to worldview to relationships. For most of us, this takes time and discipline and growth and committed participation in Christ's body. What this professor is pointing to is what Jesus is pointing to. Sexuality is but a component of one's life. It's not the fullness. It's not the fulcrum. It's not like if you're not, you're not, you're missing out on something that's part of humanity. No, in fact, sexuality is a part. It doesn't have to define us. It doesn't have to define you. But it's something that God has intended as a good and beautiful and fantastic gift that he's invited us to express in the way in which Jesus said, pointed back to, as a man and a woman joined together under the blessing of God, finding joy in all of that God has created and living with this sense that God has to be a part of it with his blessing. Question said, what did Jesus say about sex? Here are a few quick points. If you read the Gospels, read them really thoroughly, you'll find that Jesus didn't say much. But when he did talk on this subject, he affirmed God's original design of a man and woman in covenant joy. Jesus also saw the limitations of sexuality. He saw how it enslaved some and was unavailable to others. And he lovingly challenges us to embrace a sexuality that would flow from a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone, that would lead to a reorientation so that we would see ourselves and others as people who are made in the image of God. And Jesus, no matter where he went, no matter who he encountered, he always offered tenderness, community, and himself. To all who were seeking for clarity, and a path out of the confusion of their day. Jesus always, always, always invited us into the good and beautiful life. And he still does.